Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for listening and making commitment to your learning. We hope that you are doing well. We are so excited because we've started our second year of the podcast, which is kind of cool. But who the heck are we? So I am Yvonne Brandenburg, and I am joined by Jordan Porter, my dynamic, daring, and diligent (laughs) co-host. Oh, that was nice. (laughs) Obviously, this week is brought to you by the letter D. <laughs> uh, hey, how's it going? It's going okay. <laughs> if I could just get through this recording of. <laughs> I know. I feel like I. I feel like we can't guarantee there won't be animal noises in this one. There won't be kid noises. <laughs> For now, animal- who knows when they'll show back up? This is true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the dogs are not cooperating (laughs) they're like it's a new space it's really cool because jordan um moved her podcast desk everything um from her her bedroom i think it was up to a spare bedroom and she's actually gonna make like a little business office which is kind of cool yeah it's gonna be (sighs) sweet i'm trying to talk matt into letting me get a recliner (laughs) and he was like (laughs) I'll never see you. And I was like, <laughs> you're like, well, nope. it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'll have a desk. I have a couch in here and it's a pullout couch. <laughs> oh, dang. And there's like a TV and what more do you need? Wow. I need to get a mini fridge up here. Actually. <laughs> Ooh, there we go. <laughs> I know it's, a coffee it's, maker. it's funny because I, I kind of, I mean, it didn't take a lot of convincing, but I kind of talked you into doing it because I got my she shack delivered. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted it's on, it's on a pallet still like pieces, mm-hmm. um, which I spent a couple of, a couple, like, I don't know, maybe an hour. So a couple of minutes just, uh, sorting pieces and putting them into piles so that I can work on that. So I can move out of my kitchen. <laughs> yeah. That's the plan. Your upgrade's <laughs> going to be great. Cause you're going from your kitchen to, uh, like an actual, like she shack I know. Well, I feel like my room is probably going to be the same size as your room, though. Probably. It's a good size room. Yeah. So we're going to have the same amount of space. Yeah. Yeah. So you need a mini fridge? Uh, Yeah. Well, I have a recliner. Oh. I I bought a recliner at like some used store, I don't know, a year ago. Because again, in theory, (laughs) I was supposed to have my she shack a long time ago. Um, but I bought it for like 20 bucks. It's it's cute and whatever. I just was like, I'll put it in my she shack. I don't know. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I kind of want to share with everyone because Jordan and I are crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Understatement of 2020. (laughs) I know, right? So we what are uh, we doing? Yeah, you know, we got inspired, I think, by our own very own like <laughs> CE that we did. So we're gonna up our tech game a little bit, and uh, <laughs> we because <just laughs> uh, we don't have enough things on our plate. We just enrolled um, in school to get our bachelor's in veterinary technology. <laughs> that we did. 
together though we do it together yeah so you know we (laughs) keep each other on track so so there may be some episodes in the future (laughs) that we repurpose some homework that we have to do (laughs) right (laughs) (sighs) I think uh I don't think we have any questions we did our shout outs um Oh, a quick, quick reminder, because I feel like uh, there's a bunch of reviews that we've gotten that we don't know who they're from. Um, So remember, if you do review us, uh, you know, on Apple or wherever you listen to your your podcast or you share the podcast, please let us know. Uh, We have uh, stickers for everyone. So if you want a sticker, please just let us know give us your information. We'll send it to you as a thank you for leaving the review or for sharing the podcast, depending on, you know, where you're listening. Some people can't do reviews just depending on the platform that you're listening to the podcast on. So we would love to give you some stickers. Yes. Let us know who you are. (laughs) So this week we are discussing the insidious diabetes insipidus. So PUPD or polyuria polyphagia. Uh, It is one hour approved race CE. So if you're part of the internal medicine for vet text membership.com, you can go in there, you can answer the questions for the podcast and get your certificate. If you're not a member uh, in some places, remember you can use it for self-study CE. So just, you know, depending on your governing body, just take a look at that. Uh, But you can always get continued education because, you know, growing your brain is a good thing. (laughs) Yes. This week we're moving out of our immune diseases and moving back into endocrine Mm because when we did a vote a while back, everybody wanted to hear more endocrine. Right. Yeah. Which is crazy. Which is great. I did have a lot of fun with this because I got like down and dirty with the anatomy and physiology a little bit since we haven't done a basics episode. Um, (laughs) Because I was just like, all right, you want down and dirty anatomy and physiology of endocrine stuff. Like, dude, we're going there. Yeah. And I think part of that too is because in tech school, I don't know about you, but when I learned about endocrine... I feel like it was pretty fast. Like we didn't spend a ton of time on endocrine. Yes, we had to learn it, but you know, it's probably the first time I'd really heard of some of this stuff and like how it works. And, and I probably learned enough to pass the test, (laughs) but I definitely did not understand it. Um, so I think, I think this is really good to, to get back into it. And I think it really does, affect a lot of what we do in clinics, um, you know, between diabetes and some of the more easy ones. I think too, that like now that a lot of people who are listening have kind of been in veterinary medicine for a little bit, they can at least get a, I don't know, it makes more sense than when you just learn it in school. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Especially because I think I, I remember in school being like, which one's Cushing's, which one's Addison's. Like I could never remember, you know, hypoadrenocorticism versus hyper and which, which one was which, and, you know, and, and I had to use like the acronyms to remember. And so I think now that I deal with it so much more and I've seen multiple cases of these, I think it makes it so I can understand the more in-depth stuff better. 
So, so basically what we're saying is don't worry guys, it gets easier. (laughs) Definitely. So this week we're going to be talking about diabetes insipidus and we're just going to be discussing what diabetes insipidus is. I'm going to be more focusing on like the DI that is more related to the pituitary gland malfunctioning um, Mm -hmm. because there are two different versions. And so disease name this week is diabetes insipidus for the sake of my mouth again, because it likes to do whatever it wants. Sometimes I'm just going to say DI a lot of times. (laughs) (laughs) DI. DI is what it is. So two definitions for this disease. Cause again, there's two different forms. So the first form of diabetes insipidus, the one that seems more common to me and seems to be the version that I've seen probably the most, it's a lack of antidiuretic hormone or ADH production, or it can be a failure for the kidneys to respond to ADH. So it can be the pituitary malfunctioning and not producing ADH like it should, or it can be the kidneys not responding to ADH like it should. And we'll get into it a little bit more. Cause like I said, I got really down and dirty with this. Well, and I think it's really important too, to just start part of this conversation of diabetes insipidus is, has nothing to do with diabetes mellitus. Like they're, they're not related. I mean, whatsoever. The only, the only similarities they have is that you drank a lot and you peed a lot. And way back when, when they didn't understand endocrine or anything like that, they just called it diabetes because they thought it was the same disease. So eventually they figured out it's totally different. Um, and it's completely different organs that are involved in it. So yes, it's called diabetes, but it's not, it's not what we think of as diabetes type one, type two, it like is completely different. So, um, it's, it's just something to kind of remember when we're talking about this has nothing to do with the pancreas not involved at all. This is definitely like my favorite part to talk about though, is just really getting into the anatomy and physiology of how things are supposed to work before we talk about how it's malfunctioning. (laughs) Where it goes wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So in a normal patient, the pituitary gland is attached to the hypothalamus and it's an endocrine gland. So it's attached to the hypothalamus though, by the slender stalk. I think of like Jack and Beanstalk and I don't know why, but when I was writing this, Um, and this contains blood vessels and nerve fibers. And what this does is it enables the hypothalamus to control pituitary activity. So it's not the pituitary gland itself that's controlling these functions. And we're going to talk about the functions of the pituitary gland here in a second, but the vessels, so that slender stalk that contains blood vessels and nerve fibers, that is a very important part to what's happening when we're, we're, we're developing diabetes insipidus. So Mm -hmm. these vessels are called the portal system and it's located in the anterior portion of the pituitary gland. So you have your posterior portion, which has completely separate functions. And we're not going to talk about those today because that's going to come up in a different episode. (laughs) Then we have the anterior portion of the pituitary gland, which is what we're going to talk about today. And just a reminder, we're talking about in the brain. Yes, because the pituitary <laughs> gland is located in the brain, exactly. right behind the hypothalamus, which is also in the brain. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it. Um, I think in the pictures that that I put together for one of my lectures, it was really funny because every time I saw them, the way that they're 
drawn. They look like testicles. <laughs> like, I can see it's that. The wor- I was, every time I looked at it, I'm like, oh, so it's the little baby testicles in your brain. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. That makes sense because, Ugh. yeah, they definitely do because of the slender mm-hmm. stock. Yep. That connects it to the hypothalamus. Yep. And there's two little portions that look like testicles. So there you go. Now you can't unsee that in your mind's eye. (laughs) The pituitary gland is also called the hypophysis. And it's composed of the (laughs) adenohypophysis, which is the anterior lobe. So that's the front lobe. And then the neurohypophysis, which is the posterior lobe. And the neuro part plays a big key in this too. So adeno, I think of as like uh, endocrine and the neuro is like the nerve part. Did they? Yes. Even though the posterior lobe has endocrine functions, Hmm. but it's because it's so close. So we're getting to it. Okay. But there's a little, (laughs) there's also, we'll get to it. There's a little section that contains nerve fibers and the nerve fibers do something specific. So nice. the, okay. Okay. The, the posterior lobe doesn't actually produce any hormones, unlike the anterior lobe, but instead it stores hormones. So, and these two hormones are produced by the hypothalamus. So the anterior lobe of the pituitary gland has its own functions. It actually produces hormones and it disperses them accordingly. The posterior lobe just stores it from the hypothalamus. So it's produced in the hypothalamus, but stored in the, in, or the posterior lobe. Okay. Um, and those two hormones are ADH, which is our antidiuretic hormone, which is what we're talking about today, mm-hmm. and oxytocin. We are not going to talk about oxytocin today, but I'm just going to hmm. mention that it's stored in the posterior lobe. Interesting. Okay. So ADH, like we kind of already said, is synthesized in the hypothalamus, but it's released into the bloodstream via the pars nervosa, insert like Hermione Granger here. I know. So so these are nerve endings, which are in the posterior lobe that become stimulated to release this, which is why everybody assumes, which is why the posterior lobe is called the neurohypophysis because it's these nerve endings that actually release the hormones Hmm. that's kind of cool okay so what the hell does adh do we've talked (laughs) about this before because we know what inhibits adh between caffeine and alcohol like thanks to yvonne (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) so adh prevents the loss of large quantities of water and this large quantity of water is usually lost through the urine so what it does is it helps concentrate urine prevents the loss of water and if you i mean really if you break down the word the word it makes sense anti-diuretic hormone so diuresing is getting out large quantities of water so an anti-diuresing means you're gonna retain the water and not let it out through the urine so because I remember learning that word. I was like, what does that even mean? But if, again, <laughs> use your medical terminology and like break down stuff. And it makes it a lot easier when we're talking about ADH. Um, mm-hmm. So it's an anti-diuretic hormone. Mm-hmm. So where does ADH go? So the this wonderful feedback loop that we know is stemming from the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland also connects with the kidneys, mm-hmm. which is why it could be either a brain 
a quote unquote brain issue or it can be a renal issue. So ADH binds to specific receptors. These receptors are in the distal part of the nephron and they're in collecting ducts of the kidneys. It increases the renal tubular reabsorption of water from the glomerular filtrate. We talked about all of that in our kidney episodes, especially our kidney basic episode. Yes, Um, which is also where the whole like alcohol conversation came in. So if you want to know what the heck we're referencing, listen to the basics of the kidneys and we talk about that. So, (laughs) yes. And then, so that's where ADH tells the kidney to conserve water and make more, make the urine more concentrated. So Mm -hmm. that's that feedback loop of the the kidneys are going to then tell the brain like, okay, I made concentrated urine, blah, blah, blah. Like we can turn off the ADH because maybe I'm a little dehydrated and I need to increase my water intake. Yeah. Um, And this is all balanced by like blood pressure and volume. And just, there's so many things that play into this, but good old osmosis. Yeah. The kidneys are like, Oh, blood pressure's up. Let's get some urine out of here. Oh, the blood pressure's low. Let's, let's keep some fluid from the urine. So it's, it's, it's fun that all of those things, you know, together really well in homeostasis <laughs> we like this one homeostasis. Mm-hmm. so diabetes is a deficiency of adh so this is either a deficiency or like a reduced production of adh from the pituitary gland or from the hypothalamus but typically the hypothalamus produces adh but usually when diabetes insipidus is occurring it's usually from like a mass or a tumor that results in compression or destruction of those pars nervosus so those nerve mm. fibers that allow it to release the adh so those can't get stimulated so adh might be stored but they can't release because there's something compressing those those nerve fibers and usually stimulating those okay. yeah so usually those those tumors or masses are neoplasia. It can be a cyst. It can be a granuloma. Sometimes it can occur from trauma or hemorrhage because we know mm. that causes compression. So diabetes. And that. Yeah, wow. exactly. Or ADH can be affected by the target cells within the kidneys. They can lack capabilities to respond to ADH. So somehow those target cells got damaged and you got to remember our renal failure patients are usually PUPD when they're getting close to the end stage. So you got to wonder why, but it all makes sense. Mm. Um, but typically those patients, obviously we don't diagnose them with DI. We're diagnosing them with renal failure, mm-hmm. but in turn, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's the, the, you can't necessarily pinpoint water yes. release part of it. Yes. Whereas like kidney failure, it's, it's the releasing of the water plus all the other stuff. So it's, yeah, it's interesting because I guess it is kind of like what, at what level, you know, what parts of the kidney are broken? Is it just like the target cells that are, you know, for some reason malfunctioning or is it, you know, the, the tubules or there's so many parts, uh, which is yeah, exactly just <laughs> why it's bad if it goes. Well, wrong. and we can definitely have those renal failure patients who aren't necessarily overly PUPD. So their target cells might be intact. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know most, a lot of, most of the DI, so DI is actually considered pretty rare, but most of the ones that I've seen, we've ruled out any sort of renal damage. Right. Yeah. So species breeds age predecessors 
predispositions. Unfortunately, this is again, cause it's considered rare for both dogs and cats mm-hmm. can occur in both dogs and cats and it can affect any age range, no pre no breed predisposition. And it can, it can actually be, it can be nephrogenic or, and typically the nephrogenic form of DI. So the, the type that affects the kidneys target cells that can be congenital or acquired. So they can acquire renal failure. Um, but it can also be congenital. And when we see congenital DI, we tend to see symptoms by eight to 12 weeks of age. And usually that's going to be a lifelong PUPD patient. Yeah. It's, that makes sense that it's, it's congenital because that means the target cells are either malformed or, Mm -hmm. you know, not damaged because that's not that's not congenital but yeah so they're malformed in some way and so they don't respond the way that they should within Mm -hmm. the kidney to yeah you know not release all your water yeah versus most of our nephrogenic cases tend to be secondary so they do tend Mm -hmm. to be secondary to some sort of renal disease whether it be some form of kidney damage sometimes it can be um blood pressure Mm -hmm. And then central DI, which is what we consider like the, a brain tumor, because there would be a mass located behind the hypothalamus on the pituitary gland. Um, that would be considered central DI. So again, a lot of the cases that I've seen of DI, I guess it would be difficult to differentiate between renal failure and DI. Mm Mm-hmm. So when I, when we diagnose DI, it's generally because we've ruled out renal disease. Yeah. And it, uh, it's kind of interesting because the central DI, right. If we're talking about a mass on the pituitary, the pituitary does a lot of things. So mm-hmm. like I, we actually had a patient who, um, she was so cute. Her name was Maggie. Um, and she was, I think a 17 year old Fox Terrier by the time, unfortunately she passed, but she had Cushing's disease that we managed for years. Um, and the last year of her life, uh, we thought that she was like, her Cushing's was coming out of, uh, management, but it actually turned Mm -hmm. out that she was starting to have some DI. And if you think about it, like, Cushing's pituitary and all that stuff like it she had a a mass in her brain um Mm -hmm. that slowly was getting bigger and worse and so it started affecting other parts of the pituitary yeah um so it's it is interesting that we don't see many cases where there's multiple endocrine (laughs) diseases but it is possible um so that's just something you Which know, does, I mean, keep in the back of your brain when you're thinking about it, it's possible. It definitely makes sense though, too, because like when you think about Cushing's disease, if you ruled out a functioning adrenal tumor, which would be mm-hmm. a tumor on the adrenal gland, mm-hmm. then you can assume, and if, if it's not iatrogenic from steroid use, mm-hmm. then you can assume, like we talked about in the Cushing's episode, that there is a pituitary tumor on like on the pituitary gland in the brain. Yeah. And most so of the time does... they're benign, but they can yeah. still grow. Like it's- Still and growing. yeah, and then if DI, if it all, if all it takes to, to make DI occur is compression of some nerve endings, it mm-hmm. wouldn't take much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's kind of interesting how it all like wraps up nice and neat together sometimes. Yeah. So the history for these patients is pretty kind of self-explanatory. So it's usually going to be polydipsia, which is increase in drinking. And that's defined as an increase of hundred mils per keg per day of water intake or more. Polyuria is an increase in urination. And I believe this was considered, it's defined as greater than 66 mils per keg per day. Mm. So that's an increase in urination. And typically these patients have both polyuria, polydipsia, PUPD. Mm-hmm. Um, symptoms though can vary just because we're internal medicine. Right. So depending on the potential underlying cause. So again, mm-hmm. if we have an underlying cause that's more renal related, then we can see anorexia. Sometimes we can see polyphagia, especially if we're dealing with a cushionoid patient at the same time. Mm-hmm. We can see lethargy, weight loss, poor hair coat all of the above. (laughs) Right. I think the hard part about DI is the differential diagnosis that you kind of have to go through because so many things can cause PUPD that we need to make sure that we can rule all of that out because there's not, there's not a great test for diabetes insipidus, right? It's like most of our IM diseases, we have to exclude everything out before we can get it. Um, so yeah. we have, did you see my note down here? It says, guess what? DI is a rule out of exclusion <laughs> every time. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we've got hypoadrenocorticism, uh, pyelonephritis. So again, if you've got like a kidney infection, that'll make you PUPD, um, a urinary tract infection, diabetes mellitus, uh, hypercalcemia. Anytime we have an increase in calcium, that that'll definitely make them want to drink more and urinate more. And then of course, kidney disease. Um, those mm-hmm. are kind of the big ones. So we, we just need to make sure that none of those are present before we can go, Oh, you know, it's probably diabetes insipidus. So again, mm-hmm. diagnosis of exclusion, cause that's how, that's how we roll in internal medicine. Yes. <laughs> So for the sake of diagnostics, though, I'm going to talk more like we're discussing central DI versus nephrogenic DI. Mm. We're going to run our basic panel, CBC, biochemistry, just to rule out other diseases. So consider those normal. They do tend to be normal with central DI, other than obviously maybe their sodium and chloride would be a little low from just Mm. osmosis and the way the water uptake in the cells is just thrown off. So... Central DI though, obviously we're ruling out all the renal issues. Those are off the table. Mm-hmm. We've ruled out hypercalcemia. And then we're going to do a urinalysis to look for obviously signs of urinary tract infection, pyelonephritis. So these patients do tend to be hypothenuria, um, which is a specific gravity less than 1008 or mm-hmm. 1.008. So they're hypocenuric, um, super dilute urine. And they commonly though, this is where it gets you because mm-hmm. <laughs> they commonly have a secondary UTI from dilute urine, because if the urine is too dilute bacteria, there's no like acidifying factors and, and urinary protectants within the bladder that can really protect the bladder from a UTI. Mm-hmm. So that's where follow-up urinary or urinalysis are key. <laughs> Well, and sometimes it's hard because when you have really dilute urine, 
it, it can dilute some of the bacteria out too. So sometimes mm-hmm. if you have dilute urine, if you just do a standard culture, you may not get it. But if you mm-hmm. do like a low colony count, you might catch something that's in there. Um, so that's it. And it, that part's frustrating because you don't know if it's in there. Mm-hmm. And if it's a kidney infection, we don't always see it on a culture, which is yes. also super frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So typically these patients are treated with antibiotics for at least two weeks first, recheck the urine, maybe reculture it, especially if you've already grown something the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but typically after treatment, these patients are still going to be PUPD. So urine culture should be performed though, just especially for UTI or pyelonephritis, even though you might not always get something. I know back when I started as a vet tech, water deprivation tests were a thing. They are no longer considered. Yeah, I think I I definitely don't do them. No, I remember doing them in general practice 12 years ago. Yeah. But not very often because DI is pretty rare. I want to yeah. say I've done one. So what this mm. test is, it is what it sounds like it is, water deprivation. So you're withholding water. So this tests a patient's ability to concentrate urine by withholding water and seeing if removing water intake, the urine is able to become more concentrated throughout eight to 12 hours. Now this isn't advised anymore, especially because severe dehydration and renal damage can occur Mm. because especially with ADH malfunctioning, their body isn't holding onto that water like it should. So that's why severe dehydration can occur. So it definitely can be damaging. And then of course, severe dehydration can cause renal damage as well. Mm-hmm. If we don't have the proper amount of fluids running through the kidneys to circulate and filter out the blood and then blood pressure and all that stuff. Yeah. It's not always a good idea. <laughs> and usually water deprivation test results are often inconclusive. Yeah. Which is also a bummer. You're like, cool. Well, maybe <laughs> Yeah, you get a specific gravity of like 10, 10. You're like, well, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Renal biopsy can per- be performed if nephrogenic DI is considered. So if you're running some of those um, renal value tests and, and we do see some renal changes, typically a renal biopsy can be performed in electron microscopy, microscopy of renal tissues recommended just to see if you can, if the damaged cells can be identified. Mm. I never done it. I don't think I've been involved with renal biopsies. I've seen like some of the other doctors in my practice, I've seen them do it, but my doctor, I don't think she's ever really recommended a renal biopsy, especially not for DI. Like some of Mm -hmm. the other diseases, sure. But this for DI, I don't think she's ever recommended a kidney biopsy. So no, never. We do ultrasounds just because we work in IM. Ultrasounds are always done just to evaluate the urinary tract and the kidneys, evaluate adrenal glands to rule out things like Cushing's disease. Tends to be normal ultrasound findings though with our central DI because Mm -hmm. everything looks normal and because the problem's really in the brain. Right. Let's make sure there's not like liver disease. That's one thing we didn't talk about is that liver disease can also cause you to be PUPD. Mm -hmm. So again. So it can splenic disease, which- I remember reading about it and I've asked my doctor about it frequently about why, like usually splenic masses will cause pets to be PUPD, but I don't remember the why behind it. I need to find this out. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that. 
I definitely have heard that several times and huh. I, I've asked my doctor and he's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that too, but I don't remember why either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cause it's cancer and it can do whatever it wants. Is that, I think is that's that probably the along the lines of what he said. <laughs> <laughs> like that's just the answer to all the cancer questions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If we are leaning, if we've ruled everything else out and we're leaning towards central DI, Sometimes a CT or MRI can be performed because mm-hmm. sometimes you can see lesions associated with pituitary gland on these images. Not all the time, because sometimes these images or these lesions can be super small. Yeah, and I... We also don't go to it right off the bat either because it's expensive. It's expensive. You're anesthetizing a patient. And what are you going to do with that information? Exactly. Because like, it's not like it's we're a not removable doing, thing. Yeah, I was going to say, we're not doing brain surgery. No. A lot of our patients or our clients will opt for trying the medication. Yeah. Do, do they do, I mean, I guess, do they do like a, a stereotactic radiation? Is that, is that what it is? Stereotactic radiation? I read nothing on that. Cause I mean, cause if we're, it's really like a CT or MRI is looking for tumors, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to, I don't know that we've, we've sent one to UGA though, and they didn't do anything different than we did. Right. Like that's my thing. It's like, okay. And so, they imaged it and found a tumor, but they didn't do anything different. I guess it's one of those things like <laughs> you have a definitive diagnosis. There is a tumor, but we don't treat it like we don't and because it can be benign Mm. or malignant it's not like you can biopsy it to find out if it is benign or malignant you just have to just kind of have to wait and see if it gets worse (laughs) or rescan to see if it's getting bigger which again (laughs) that's expensive and (laughs) you're not going to do anything about it anyways yeah i don't know like i wonder if it's more common with like people to do CTs and MRIs because it is a brain tumor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it really just affects quality of life. It doesn't necessarily kill the patient. Yeah. Especially if they're benign. Cause how many of our like cushionoid patients, right? Yeah. We know that it's a pituitary gland tumor and we say, okay. And, and they live long lives being treated with Cushing or for their Cushings. It's not. It's very, most very of similar. Time, yeah. Most of the time interesting i I wonder if if any of you guys if any of you guys work with someone or have seen patients that get ctrmis for like diabetes insipidus or cushings or anything like that or you work for a neurologist like oh we can ask our neurology friends oh yes be like hey is this something you guys deal with and they'll probably laugh at us and be like that's treated by you guys yeah right (laughs) they're like no 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 (laughs) huh interesting so as we get into it treatment Mm -hmm. apparently we don't know the full realm of treatment but from what i read radiation didn't come up right because i don't think that's a thing i I don't think it's a thing so it depends on Underlying etiology, obviously, if there's secondary causes that might be causing our DI symptoms, and we're going to treat the underlying causes like renal disease, renal failure, mm-hmm. uh, Cushing's disease, things like that. If we are dealing with just what we feel is central DI, we're going to treat with synthetic ADH or vaso- 
like a vasopressin. So available on the market is something called desmopressin, which is what we use. It's also called DDAVP. Mm -hmm. Uh, It comes in either oral, intranasal, or ophthalmic drops. And this medication is used to increase urine concentration, which in turn reduces PUPD because we're helping to correct that feedback loop a little. Yeah. A lot of our patients will do like a trial run of this medication and then we'll recheck their urine specific gravity. And if their urine specific gravity is going up, we're like, okay, we're treating DI. (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly how it goes in my clinic. We're like, okay, we've ruled out all these other things. We're going to do a DDAVP trial, see how things go. And if it works, then we're like, there we go. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we do the, I think we do the ophthalmic drops for the We've done both. We've done the tablets and the ophthalmic drops. It's really client preference on what they think they can do. Yeah. I think never done the intranasal. Yeah. I think we just do the drops for the trial and I can't even remember why. I wonder if it's like a Con- absorption like, thing absorb closer to the tumor maybe i don't know because i know <laughs> that we do tablets like long term so it's kind of interesting that huh. maybe it's a quicker onset of like knowing yeah to diagnose yeah. maybe yeah. that could be because you're probably rechecking doctors. those patients you're in specific gravity and like within a week mm-hmm. versus the tablets i think takes two weeks or longer yeah so that's probably that's probably why we do the drops and then transition them. Mm-hmm. Because I think drops short-term is great, but long-term tablets are great because you really know like a dose. Yeah. Like a specific set dose. Yeah. There is that too. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, how many drops? Oops. Three. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully people aren't doing that, but <laughs> yeah. Client communication is, you know, our IMFBT like forte right now. (laughs) Yes. We really like to talk about client communication. So these clients need to be informed, not necessarily by us technicians, but especially if we're dealing with like central DI, yes, it's Mm -hmm. a brain tumor. No, it doesn't always, it isn't always malignant. It can be, you know, benign thing medication will not fix or cure the patient it just might relieve some of their symptoms to improve their quality of life and that's the goal for these patients is just to reduce some of that pupd to give them a better quality of life now mind you Mm -hmm. with central di a lot of times that's the only symptom that they're having yeah it's just severe pupd which is great but we all know clients and not everybody will tolerate a dog peeing in the house or needing to be let out every hour on the hour so it's yeah. critical to inform clients so that withholding water is not good for their pet. Cause a lot of people will be like, well, I got to withhold it while I'm out at work or something like that. Cause if not, they're going to flood everything. Yeah. We can't do that to these patients. It can cause again, severe dehydration or renal damage on these patients. And then we run into more problems and then the quality of life really goes down. Mm-hmm. Discussing quality of life with our clients in these patients is a big thing. Quality of life should be measured in these patients because if we're having more bad days than good days, we have a quality of life tracker. Is that in the technician tre- treasure trove? Uh, I will double check. I think it is. Um, but also like in the journals, we have it in like the six month journal for sure. And that's how it's using like a journal or a calendar, whatever the clients want to use is also really good for tracking because mm-hmm. they can write down like 
the quantity of water intake, how many times the pet's urinating, um, and see, you know, do we need to adjust the medications at any point? Um, how is our quality of life? Yeah. Yeah, I think it helps clients to realize that they are like the point that they do start having more bad days than good days Mm -hmm. because the medication can be adjusted. Yes. But only to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. Especially if it is a pituitary tumor that is growing. You can only control that so much. It does require a change in lifestyle because these patients will have lifelong PUPD. Um, So parents need to be available to let their pets outside frequently, or they need to hire a pet sitter to come into the house and let their pets out. So that way they don't come home or these pets aren't laying. And even though it's dilute urine, it can still cause urine scald, especially if they're laying in it for eight hours a day. My dogs are home alone for eight hours a day, at least. (laughs) Yeah. So if I had a DI patient, I would definitely have to drastically change the way I do things, Mm -hmm. Um, which is fine, but I'd have to get frequent access to water. I have two dogs who are, don't have access to water while I'm gone during the day, but they're young, healthy dogs and don't need it for the few hours that, well, not few hours, but for the day that I'm gone. Um, but sometimes I can put a bowl of water in my dog's cage, but he usually spills it and <laughs> then his bedding's all wet. Ah, thin. <laughs> exactly. I gotta get him. You, have you seen those like water bottles that they have for dog cages? I don't know yeah, if they're smart they enough look, to figure it out. They look like rabbit. Yeah. Water bottles. Yes. <laughs> I'm not convinced he'd be smart enough to figure it out. He might. He'd probably just chew on it. Somehow yank it off uh, the cage and chew yeah, it up. Yeah. You can try it. But yes. I do I'll try like it when he develops probably... DI. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't think he's going to develop DI. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes in these patients too, it's important to discuss with clients. Sometimes medications work for a while, but then may need to be tapered to an effective dose or increased up to an effective dose. Adjustments are made based on symptoms, yep. not based on anything else. Cause there's not a test we can do. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. For client communication though, too, like, especially if these clients have like a congenital like puppy with mm. DI, yeah. that really would be a bummer. Cause not a lot of people want to think that their dog might have, that was something we didn't talk about either was ectopic ureters. That doesn't normally cause polydipsia, but that should be a rule out too, especially in our mm. young, potentially congenital patients. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of urinary tract diseases <laughs> should be ruled out. <laughs> go back and listen to our renal series on all the urinary tract things that can go right. wrong. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, if it's congenital, I, I guess it's that whole, you know, they just need to understand what that means for them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sometimes the, their lifestyle can't deal with that and they may have to find a new home for the pet so Which i'm sure has happened so i'm sure someone listening as a technician probably has a di patient right <laughs> right a rehomed congenital di patient <laughs> i bet <laughs> probably sounds about right <laughs> if you do please send me a message <laughs> right we should do a post in the membership about like all the technician pets, like the special needs pets that technicians have taken in. (sighs) Or have ended up with, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, seriously. It's the tip of the week. This week's tip of the week, uh, we're going to 
we're going to say, you know, with any kind of PUPD patient that we have or pet, whichever way, you know, you're looking at it, um, don't underestimate the possibility of diabetes insipidus, even though it is considered a rare disorder, um, because it, again, it's, it's possible. So we don't want to just like rule out because we're like, oh, we'd never see it. So it, it isn't something that's necessarily fatal, um, but it can just be a, an issue with quality of life. But it's also fairly easy to treat. I mean, you know, it's it's not, the medications aren't super expensive. You know, the, the follow-up isn't expensive. You know, it's not like we're having to do like chemistries and CBCs every six months for this, you know, it's- You're not wrong. I mean, like it's for all the, the internal diseases. medicine, <laughs> of all the internal medicine diseases that we treat, DI probably has to be one of the cheapest. It is probably one of the cheapest and yes, it can be frustrating if you have a pet that is PUPD and having accidents in the house, especially if, if it's gone to the point where it's more behavioral now, instead of just physical issues. Um, because, you know, depending, especially if you've got a congenital patient, right. They, they probably have already started learning bad behaviors. Like it's okay to pee in the house. Um, but you know, it, it is something that to kind of keep in the back of your head. If you've got a PUPD patient and we can't figure out why we may need to look at DI. And now for the question of the week. I like this question because I'm just a nosy person. <laughs> right. <laughs> and because we've already talked about how there's no specific species. There's no specific breed. There's no specific age. So I want to know, have you ever seen a DI case? Was it a dog or a cat? What breed? How old? Um, mine was, I mean, the first one that I really remember, mine was a middle-aged greyhound. Mm. I've seen a couple since then. Um, and we ruled out everything else. So we did rule in central DI just because the dog responded well to desmopressin mm. and was eventually euthanized when like arthritis plus the PUD, PUPD kicked in. Mm. So like we managed, the, we quote unquote managed that dog. The dog did very, very well on desmopressin but we would have to taper upward and then just between arthritis, getting a hold of the dog and the dog not wanting to walk and get up and get out when right. it had to urinate often just, enough. Yeah. It just drastically reduced his quality of life. And it's definitely understandable. I have one that we see occasionally who's a young golden. I think he's three. Mm. So. Yeah. And you know, I don't, I definitely have not seen a DI cat. Nope. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that's probably rarer than dogs. Um, I've seen a couple of dogs with DI, um, not, not a ton, but yeah, I, mine would definitely be Maggie. <laughs> what breed was Maggie? I'm pretty sure she was a Fox Terrier. Oh yeah. You said that. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. My God. And she was old. She was old. She was very old by the time, um, and we euthanized her. Uh, yeah, I think that's how, like, the Greyhound was old. I think the Greyhound was already, I mean, middle-aged, old, like, it was, like, eight. Mm. Which is, I guess, old for a Greyhound, but middle-aged for is most. It? I haven't seen many old, old Greyhounds. I've seen a couple. I guess, I guess they all, <laughs> they all, like, have other diseases that they get in trouble with, so, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So let us know. You can let us know on Facebook. You can let us know on the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs website, 
or you can let us know in the membership site if you are a member. We love to learn more and talk about cases. It's great. All right. Well, that I think that is going to be it for our insidious diabetes insipidus episode. <laughs> Because it can be, be evil. Uh, if you have any questions, please let us know. Otherwise, um, I think that's it for this week, right? Yep. We will cool. talk to you next week. Everybody keep getting your learn on and be the rock star technicians we know that you are. And we'll talk to you next time. Have a good week, guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.